0: morning, everyone. Uh, How's everyone doing? Everything all right? Amazing. Wasn't that an amazing time of worship, worshiping our God together? Um, So as Tom said, my name's Owen. Um, I work for the church and do sort of media and communication things. Um, And this morning, I've got the privilege of sharing God's word. Um, We are going through a series in the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians at the moment. If you haven't um, been with us over the last little while, um, we're going through 1 and 2 Corinthians. There are recaps of all the sermons on our website which have been before and there are also some amazing little recap videos which sounds a bit I know it's not full of myself to say they're amazing videos because Sarah Welch is the one who drew them I'm not the one who drew them I just put them together Um, but they're great little videos which just recap what has been going on in the series so far so they're on our YouTube channel so grab those if uh, you want to learn a bit more Today we're going to be carrying on the series looking at 2 Corinthians. Um, We're going to be at the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the whole topic of this morning is we are looking at boasts. Now when I was younger, um, growing up, the topic of boasts, when my mum told me don't boast, it basically meant don't be prideful, don't be proud about what um, you are doing and speak with arrogance about different things. Um, and that was sort of the vibe that was used when we spoke about boasts. Um, there was an adult who was one of my teachers, I think, and I remember um, I always used to think he was quite boastful because he'd always like, start conversations by saying things like, you know, oh, do you know who did this? And I'd go, oh, no, well, no, and he'd go, I did and that's genuinely how he spoke. It was really interesting. Um, so, for some fun, to start off the morning, um, I thought that we would have a short game of Whose Is That Boast? <laughs> and we've got a little, little jingle for the game show, Whose Is That Boast? Um, I'm going to put up, it's very simple, I'm going to put up a quote, um, and if you think you know who's, who said that boast, they're all celebrities, mainly, um, by the way, so um, the first boast that we're going to be looking at is, I'm different, I have a different constitution, I have a different brain, I have a different heart, I've got tiger blood, man, anyone, anyone think they know who that might be? Someone? It, it was not Kanye. No, I've got to say, I'll, I'll be honest with you, no political points at all. But as soon as I, as soon as I've said that in most of these, someone said, was it Kanye? And then was it Trump? Those were the two that people went for. Uh, no, it's actually Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Uh, the next one, nobody can tell me where I can and can't go. Man, I'm the number one living and breathing rock star. I'm Axl Rose. I'm Jim Morrison. I am Jimi Hendrix, obviously he's not all of those things, all those people, it's someone a third person, so. That one is Kanye, that one is Kanye. (laughs) Uh, The third one, um, which I think is possibly one of the weirdest things to say once releasing an album, I can proudly say it was ahead of its time. To be honest, you had to be a real music lover to be a true fan of music, and love of being really open to really appreciate that record. Who, who do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I've listened to it. Any any guesses? Britney Spears, Britney Spears is not Britney Spears. It's actually Christina Aguilera. Yeah. And uh, finally, the last quote: "This is how history is made." Any any guesses? Any guesses? It was Tom Simmons. It was Tom Simmons. Yes, um, those are the winners. Um, or possibly losers. Um, but today we're going to be talking about a slightly different um, use of the word boast, uh, which is something closer to when a hotel might say uh, that they boast high standards of comfort. Um, when, you, when a hotel says we boast high standards of comfort, we don't all go, oh, what an arrogant so-and-so. We go, that's a good thing. We like that. Um, so last week, Cy spoke about the journey that Paul has been on since writing 1 Corinthians. He spoke about those in the church who stood opposed to his teaching and apostleship, creating more severe divisions of how then Paul changed his travel plans and headed directly to Corinth to spend more time with the church before heading to Macedonia. But as soon as he arrived, he was the object of a hurtful attack from an individual, probably one with a position of authority, and there was no sign of the rest of the congregation supporting or defending him or bringing discipline to this individual. Paul then returns to Ephesus, writing his severe letter that Cy spoke about last week. And then there's repentance after that letter is read, and Titus brings this news to Paul that the church has repented. So Paul now writes this letter to Corinthians, and he says, in a nutshell, I still love you, I still want what is best for you, But there needs to be repentance, forgiveness, sanctification, and change. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So this morning we're going to look at Paul having assurance in his boasts in Christ, his boasts are in Christ, that Paul teaches forgiveness in the position of a convicted offender. Spiritually convicted offender, that is, not legally convicted offender. And Paul is a slave to Christ. Christ and that his identity means that those two earlier things are possible. So let's start with Paul's boast, which is a bit different to some of the boasts that we read just then. So if you'd like to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1, and we're starting at chapter 12. Verse 12. Verse 12, indeed. Chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that his, Titus, Timothy, those uh, key leaders who were together, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because of this, I was sure. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating? That means indecising, flip-flopping around. When I wanted to do this, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and... No, no, at the same time. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, which means it hasn't been wavering. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Hallelujah. But I call to God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. We'll read the rest of the section later. So, my first point for today is that true disciples have assurance as their boast is in Christ. Paul's boast is this, that his teaching to the Corinthians was the true gospel of Christ Jesus, that his character was one of integrity and grace, and that their sanctification will lead to the realization of this. He writes to defend his integrity against the lies and deception that people in Corinth have said against him. And though we don't have the letter that was written to Paul, and we don't have the, letter that, uh, the severe letter that he sent to him, there are some things we can infer from the painful visit that must have happened from this uh, letter here. There must have been some questioning of Paul's apostleship and, and teaching. Some questioned his heart for the church due to him not being around all the time and not coming quickly, when, in their mind, quickly. And some seem to think that he's not true to his words, that he says yes and no. He doesn't say he's not, his yes is not his yes and his no is not his no, as Jesus says. And I want to just make it clear, Paul is not proud or prideful and wanting to look good to defend himself. I, don't know about you, but often when I defend myself, it's because I feel like someone sort of actually touched a nerve in my heart and I feel like I need to defend myself. That's not Paul's heart. He is passionate that they know the gospel, that saving gospel that he brought to them, and that they know that it was true. For if they question him, what's to stop false teachers or disunity making them question more? It's actually a thing that we talk about a lot in, um, in when we do youth work. I, I always sort of say, make sure that you are very sure of your answers when you share. Don't share something you're not, you're not sure on, you know, or you hear in a, a random bit off the internet. Because if young people then read that later and they go, oh, actually, that, that wasn't true. Well, what's to say that the rest of what we told them about Jesus wasn't true? And so it's always very sure when you, when you share the gospel, when you share what God has done, be grounded in scripture and that's what Paul wants to make clear. So what does Paul's response to the Corinthians teach us? Well firstly to live transparent God-fearing lives. Paul's assurance doesn't come from his own abilities or his own skills but in his trust in the gospel and reliance on God's grace. When When you live your life in step with the Spirit, trusting in God for each next thing. You don't revoke responsibility for your actions, but there is complete trust that when you step with him, he will have you in his arms, he will catch you. What you do will be of him. And that means you can also bring a defense in honesty and humility. For when you live God-fearing, transparent lives, there is nothing to hide when people bring things against you. And secondly working in team. Paul writes in the plural throughout the start of verses 12, 13, 14. This is our boast. This is our conscience testifying. Paul stands with Titus and Timothy and their conscience and their spirits agree they have not misled the Corinthians. They have not treated them with anything but love and integrity and godly sincerity. In fact, the only time, actually it was Simon who pointed this out to me when we were chatting, the only time that Paul says his spirit was not at rest in this whole passage, not not at pain, he's been at pain before, but his spirit not being at rest, him not being sure, is later in 2.13, when he cannot find Titus. Isn't that interesting? Throughout the whole of this, the only time that Paul is not at rest is when he can't be in team with the guys that he is around. Paul understands the importance of standing and team and unity. And what is Paul's hope? Well, it says in verse 14, And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. He hopes for a church that boasts in all that God has done in each other that can bring testimony of godly integrity when they find that of the people that they invest in and that they are investing in. In years to come, I want people that I invest in to say that I did my best for them, for them to know Christ. Not so that I get a warm glow, but because it spiritually matters that in years to come, those young people that I've invested in can say, actually, you know what? He may not have done everything right, but actually Owen cared about my relationship with God. He cared about what um, Christ said about me and the identity that I have in him. That's what I want, and that's what we should all want. So, true disciples have assurance because their boast is in Christ. Secondly, true disciples bring conviction, but also forgiveness. So let's pick up our Bibles and go back to verse 5 of chapter 2. We're going to go from verse 5 to 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test and you and, I, and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant, Of his designs. Now that Paul has put forward his case for his integrity, he now speaks practically about the situation that he found himself in. The leader of the rebellion against Paul in Corinth no longer seems to have authority. His disciples have repented and returned back to the fold under the leadership. And now there's a question of punishment, church discipline. Now, there's some discussion about scholars about what this punishment of the majority was. Um, some say that there might have been bodily punishment. Uh, some might say it's a sentence of ex- excommunication, like the man who's caught in adultery with his stepmother, like we read in 1 Corinthians. There's a question of whether this man has expressed repentance or not. But whatever the situation, we know that Paul takes this opportunity for pastoral teaching rather than authoritarian, strong Leadership. I put strong in inverted commas actually on that one because strong leadership does look like pastoral teaching. Calvin says something really interesting. The passage should be carefully noted for it teaches with what impartiality and mildness the church's discipline is to be exercised in order that it may not be unduly severe. Severity is required in order that wicked men may not be be made bolder by being allowed to go unpunished, for this is rightly said to be an enticement to sin. But on the other hand, there is a danger that a man who is disciplined will fall into despair, so that the church must practise moderation and be ready to pardon anyone as soon as it is sure that he has sincerely repented. Now, I'm not gonna speak about church discipline. It's not my place to do that. Church discipline is for the eldership to speak on and to uh, carry out. But I think that there are words of truth for us as well when we're dealing with brothers and sisters who stand in sin in the church. The important points for Paul are unity and repentance. When a brother or sister in Christ truly repents of their sin, we are called to bring forgiveness and fellowship. Calvin is very clear that if we continue with severity, it can lead to despair. And it also could lead to something much worse, which is the enemy causing rifts and disunity in the body of Christ. Satan loves, absolutely loves when Christians fight. Loves it. He loves it when they hold enmity towards each other. Because when we're doing that and we're showing our dirty laundry in public, we aren't showing the light and life of Christ. Christchurch, let us, like Paul says, not be ignorant of his designs. Let us be quick to forgive, full of mercy and love, just as Christ. I just want to read the parable of the unforgiving servant, because I think it's an amazing analogy and and, and story of this. So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew 18, we're going to verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as 7 times?" Jesus said to him, "I do not say to you 7 times, but 70 times 7." Seven. Now, what's really interesting is when Peter says 7 times, the standard time that you would forgive someone would be six. So what Peter's saying is, if I do one more than that, if I go above even what I'm meant to do, isn't that isn't that good? Jesus says, that's not enough. Seventy times seven. By which he doesn't mean the number that 70 times seven is. I think 270? I think that's correct. Um, He means an inordinate amount of time, never ending. Therefore, the king of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about 20 years' worth of wages. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is about 20 weeks' worth of wages, so not a small amount, but nowhere near as much as he had. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you had pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do To every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. True disciples forgive as they have been forgiven. We've heard this morning about that amazing work of Jesus on the cross. That we were far from him. We had sinned against God. Our debts were more than 20 years. Our debts were the whole of our lives, sins that we committed day after day, thoughts, actions, words, against a holy God, as we sang earlier. But Jesus paid that price. By coming down, by living a perfect life, by walking that cross and dying on that cross, he took all of the punishment this great exchange of all the punishment, all of the sin. And he died to it. And he paid that punishment on the cross. And then he rose again, free of all that punishment, free of all that cost. And if you and I die with him, we too can rise with him, free of all that punishment, free of all that cost. I know many of you here today know that freedom, know that amazing truth. If you don't, we'd love to chat with you more about it today because it is amazing truth. That is the gospel. That is the truth. That is why we shout and we sing and we whoop for joy because we know that true freedom of our souls. Finally, because of all this grace and forgiveness, we are bought at a price for Christ. True disciples are slaves to Christ. Let's read our third section back in chapter 2, and we're going to verses 12 to 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Remember I said about that earlier. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, who, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. your life smells of Christ, if you are in him, whether you like it or not. When you go into situations, you will find people respond well to you or will say, get out. I don't want to be near you. You smell of Christ, whether you want like it or not. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Finally, Paul speaks about his sufferings as an apostle as a steward of the gospel, but how through his sufferings, Christ is lifted high, he is glorified. Paul, the other apostles, in extension the Corinthian church, and in extension us, are captives and slaves of Christ. And it all is summed up in this term, the triumphal procession of Christ. Now, A triumph, or a Roman triumph, to give it its full title, was a civil ceremony and religious rite of ancient Rome. It was held publicly to celebrate and sanctify the success of a military commander who had led Roman forces to a victory in the service of the state, or more common, in conquering a land and submitting it to Roman rule. They would return then to Rome and be heralded as victors. i have got this quote of, of what it looks like. And this is purely from, I think it was from Wikipedia, actually. On the day of his triumph, the general wore a crown of laurel, an all-purple, gold-embroidered, triumphal toga, regalia that identified him as a near-divine or near-kingly, and was even known to paint his face red. He rode in a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome in unarmed procession with his army captives and spoils of his war, At Jupiter's temple on Capitoline Hill, he offered sacrifices and tokens of his victory to the god Jupiter. Now, there may be some things that I read there which sound a little bit similar. The triumph of Rome and the triumph of Christ. In the triumph of Rome, there is a crown of laurel. In the triumph of Christ, there is a crown of thorns. In the triumph of Rome, there is a purple robe. In the triumph of Christ, he was dressed in a purple robe. In the triumph of Rome, there was divine and kingly regalia. But Christ was jeered as the king of the Jews, his divine powers mocked by those around him. The triumph of Rome might have painted his face red. Jesus' face was red with the blood that fell from his head. The general would have been carried on a four-horse chariot, but Jesus carried his own cross. The general went up Capitoline Hill to bring sacrifice. Christ went up the hill to Golgotha to be the sacrifice. But this is what's really interesting. The general... On earth, carried army, captives, and spoils of his war. And eternally, Christ does those as well. His army, which is us, his captives, which is us, and the spoils of his war against death and sin, which is us. We are all of those things. Being a slave of Christ is such an important part of our lives as Christians. We as believers are slaves to Christ. And often we might not suspect it, though. In contemporary Christianity, the language that we often use isn't slave language. It's about freedom. It's about liberation. It's about health, wealth, prosperity, finding your own fulfillment, fulfilling your dream, finding your own purpose. We often hear that God loves you unconditionally and wants you to be all that you want to be. He wants to fulfill every ambition, every desire, every hope, every dream and to a certain extent that is true but as it said you were bought at a cost. If you give your life to Christ you do just that. You give your life to Christ and you say it is yours. You do what you want with it. The term that's often used of a believer of a slave of Christ is doulos. It's a Greek word and Strangely enough, it's also the name of the task team that we called it at Uckfield. We used to call it doulos, and I don't think many people knew that it meant slave, but um, a <laughs> bit interesting. But it's not the common word for a paid servant. There are many Greek words for servant. Doulos means slave or bond servant. And, you know, that doesn't sit nicely often with our 21st century wording, and for good reason in some cases. And it's worth noting that when we talk about Old Testament and New Testament slavery, it does not look like the horrors that we have seen in our history over the last few centuries, which so many Christians fought and died to end. It doesn't look like that. It looks different. So, some of the characteristics of a Roman slave, and so some of the characteristics of us. Number one, exclusive ownership. Paid servants can be hired and can quit. A slave is owned because he was bought at a price, just as we were. Number two, complete and constant availability and obedience. A slave can't just say, oh, I don't feel like it today. Just in the same way, we can't say, oh, God, I'm doing my own thing today. You know, I'll come back to you on Sunday. That's not how it looks Number three, you're subject to one will. No man can be a slave to two masters. You can have two employers, but you can't have two masters who have control over you. And that's why Jesus' statement is so self-evident. No man can be a slave to two masters. There has to be singular devotion. Number four, complete dependence on his master for everything. And just as a slave would depend on his master, we depend on Christ for everything. God for everything. Anything that is provided to us, anything that is earthly that we have, it is not ours. It was given to us by Christ who has all. And finally, all discipline and reward comes from that master. Paul sees that all discipline and reward comes straight from God. And that is why he doesn't fear the judgment of the Corinthians who were set against him as he knows the call and his integrity to his master. But he also strives for the Corinthians and other churches not to fall into sin and away from Christ, as he knows of the day of the Lord. And like a foreman, he keeps his men and women together and working because he knows what is coming. It's also worth saying that we are not peddlers of the gospel. We don't sell And we don't get money from it. True teachers should never get money from the gospel. I don't mean in terms of paid ministry. I mean try to reap earthly rewards from it. Because we are slaves of Christ, not entrepreneurs of Christ. We need to depend solely on him. Finally, a slave status was related to who his master was. It was an honor to be a part of the household. It seems really weird, but it was. To be a a slave in Caesar's household was a big deal, really high up. You are a slave at the highest level. And we have no honor for ourselves other than the honor that comes to us because of who our master is, Jesus. And that's why the apostles could say, I am a slave of God. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's where the honor came from. And I submit to him for all my needs. I'm dependent on him as my protector, my provider, and I submit to him all my discipline of my failures and my disobediency, that he might conform me more to his will. And I submit to him so that someday my reward will be, well done, good and faithful slave. Let him give me what he will. I'd just like the band to come up. In conclusion... Paul is not in fear to receive doubts and aggression or to forgive those who commit such acts, as his assurance is in his position in the triumph of his master, Jesus Christ. If you would just like to stand, I've just got a few things that I, I feel would be good to pray into. If what I've said has spoken to you, maybe... You need to have forgiveness for those who have sinned against you. Maybe even someone who has repented, but you're still harboring that unforgiveness. When you see them, it's like someone just plunges a little needle into your heart. God wants you to forgive them and move on. He wants you to be free. Maybe it's about trusting church discipline in the hands of the eldership. Maybe it's revolving our mind to remember that we're slaves to Christ. And finally, I've just got to a prophetic word that I think I have for someone here. It could be for a number of people. The role of the slaves in the household depends on gifting, but also the season and the needs of that household. So sometimes the household needs certain things, and we are called into that for a season. Maybe it's harvest season, so everyone has got their hands to a plow. It may not have been our plan, it may not have been what you originally wanted it may not be what you think your skill deserves but it's what god has called us to this season i feel that's for some people here that maybe you feel you know i can do so much more god can't you see that i've got these giftings i've got this to do and god goes i know the season will come but at the moment there's a season of harvest and there's a season of work and so i've put you where i am for a reason where you are for a reason Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can rely solely on you for everything. Thank you that because we were bought at a cost, our lives are not our own. And Lord, thank you for the freedom that that gives as we can rely on you, our creator and sustainer. Lord, I pray that we would seek to live in unity together as brothers and sisters of Christ, heirs to the promise, but also slaves to you. Let us be quick to forgive, quick to love, just as you have loved and forgiven us. And let us worship you together for all the rest of our days. Amen. Amen.